Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. This isn't just about destroying things and deconstructing things. We need to stop the foolishness that has informed the exclusion and marginalization of people, sometimes for profit, sometimes for random principles. But we have to rebuild it into something better. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Kareem Creighton, an attorney, law professor, and academic whose work explores the effects of state-sanctioned racial discrimination on campaigns, elections, and governance. He served as the executive director of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and is the founder and managing partner of CrimCard Consulting, which is now advising, among other clients, the Virginia Redistricting Commission. Kareem is also a high school classmate of mine. Uh, Welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be with you. So it's been, what, 30 years? Um, What you been up to? Oh, the time, how it flies. (laughs) Yes. Uh, A lot of stuff, but uh, learning a lot about redistricting. And, uh, you know, it's something I picked up in college, got interested in, partly actually because of what we experienced in Montgomery um, in 1992, the first redistricting with a strong application of the Voting Rights Act and got interested decided to take that into a PhD program and pick that on into law school. And so decided, yeah, this was going to be the cause of my life. And so that's what I've been doing in different forms and in different perspectives, basically since uh, leaving Montgomery. Well, you skipped over Harvard undergrad, a few professorships. Um, Safe to say you've done pretty well for yourself. I do definitely want to talk about the redistricting work that you've been engaged in. And we'll start with with what you're working on now in Virginia. And I guess I want to ask a meta question. How worried should we be about the election law changes that we're seeing, the redistricting efforts that we're seeing, especially in swing states with Republican-controlled legislatures? Are the alarm bells that are going off overhyped? Or should we be worried? So generally speaking, I think we do need to be worried. And I say that, as you point out, a professor, a scholar who studied this for a long time, and also, frankly, as a citizen who's observed stuff that we, I think, never expected we would in the modern era. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, As I started doing work in political science and typically in the conversation about American politics as compared to like international politics or comparative politics looking at other countries, there's always this expectation that like the stability of the United States, particularly the balance in the party system was always something that would sort of keep things pretty much in the middle of the road. Yes, we go to the right sometimes, it might go to the left sometimes, but for the most part, you could expect that sort of stability was the name of the game for the most part. And unfortunately, I think the last few years, in particular the last presidential election, have made abundantly clear that for those of us who think about this carefully, democracy has always been, even in the United States, a sort of uh, tenuous project. And it requires people to really commit to developing it and also protecting elements, even when it doesn't necessarily help you in the short term. There's some commitment to the system and the process that overrides all. And that has fallen away from our public discourse. And I'll just say specifically, I never thought I would live to see a nationally contested presidential election where at the end of it, there was one side that explicitly went after the legitimacy of outcomes and process in states even shared by their own party. And that's what we're seeing. And so this uh, widespread effort to quote, and I say quote, because it's not really to audit elections, and frankly, then to roll back provisions that have been helpful in allowing people to exercise their right to vote is very troubling. Now, it's not new. It comes from, in my view, a long line of uh, steps that have gone from things like 
you know, people working on the edges to get advantages in gerrymandering. That's always existed. It's gotten a lot worse now to uh, places where people have decided to ignore the rights of uh, people of color to have full and fair access to the political system. When all these things have sort of been pitched, they've usually been involving a court case. And, you know, people have the reasoned arguments that they'd offer that says, well, you shouldn't do things like expand the ballot. But all of that, in my view, has led to this point where people recognizing that the population is changing and not particularly being comfortable with it, realize that votes and elections aren't going to do the trick anymore. So now we essentially tilt the table. And that's a scary thing when it comes to democracy, because, of course, the project only works if both sides, in fact, all sides are committed to it, whether it's a win for you in an election or a loss. But what happens, taking you back to the point about the comparative politics, you know, sometimes it happens that a group is so disgruntled with an outcome that they want to depart from the project entirely. And they resort to violence and they resort to manipulating heretofore uh, seen as sacrosanct uh, institutions. So I think if you look at what's happening on the court right now, that's another element of how people have decided by any means necessary uh, control is going to be maintained. And that's a scary thing from a perspective of those who actually believe that law actually should govern to some degree how elections are managed. That's a lot to say, but you asked me for it. <laughs> I, I got a lot to follow up on. Uh, I'll start sure. with the last thing you said. As, as a scholar uh, and, and student of the court system, what do you make of Amy Coney Barrett's admonition about the court becoming over-politicized. This after, of course, she appeared on the White House balcony with President Trump. Is that a concern of yours? And how do you parse the hypocrisy of those raising that concern? Well, so this is one of those sort of ongoing things that, you know, law professors, particularly those who teach constitutional law, remind us that, you know, the law and the Constitution are all supposed to be sort of blind to partisan interests. And courts are, right, in some ways, the guardians of assuring that that's true. The problem has been that the appointment of justices, particularly to the United States Supreme Court, but not just there, uh, the process has become terribly politicized. And again, much as we've been talking about the election system becoming sort of a winner-take-all and at-all-cost project, the appointment to courts have really followed the same track. And, you know, again, speaking for myself on this only, my view of this is, you know, the appointment, that particular appointment, but that's not the only one, has just followed such an atypical trajectory where the Republicans, God bless them, said we won't have an appointment in an election year, which is what led them to deny a place to Merrick Garland on the court in the latter days of the Obama administration, decided to just jettison that plan entirely. And so now it's a might makes right rule. If we've got the majority, we do what we want. And frankly, that informs how courts work, unfortunately. To me, I'm very concerned to uh, answer your question directly about judges who don't take that very seriously, both in spouting off, you, you know, uh, Justice Coney Barrett isn't the only one who's done that. There's an exchange now with uh, Justice Alito going after members of the press about what he thinks is intemperate commentary. This isn't what judges typically do, and I think it's not good for the institution as a whole. I don't know how we get back this project, but it does seem to me where we have, frankly, an assortment of politicized interests and money interests who will use any and all means necessary to get their preferred judge on the court. I just don't think what you get is an unbiased and neutral arbiter of decisions. And as we see more and more of these politicized issues presented to the court, I don't know how anybody expects a court to make a decision that can be viewed as fair. And I think it's reflected, frankly, in the um, public uh, confidence in the court, which is at one of the all-time lows. Your comment about might makes right doesn't just implicate the courts and the process by which judges are appointed and confirmed. It seems to be dominating the way Republican legislatures are seeking to cement their their majorities, whether or not they have a support of the majority of the population. The MO seems to be in the redistricting battles we're seeing around the country, how do we cement minoritarian rule? Uh, you're part of, or at least an advisor to one of these redistricting commissions. Are you picking up on that in the conversations with Republicans at the heart of these decisions? 
Well, I'm a little loath to talk about uh, current projects that I'm working on. So I'll just say in general, my experience has been, it, you know, here's the main point to mention. Of the states that have adopted commission forms of redistricting uh, management, which intend to take away, at least in theory, politics out of that decision and focus more on the people elected, choosing their elected representatives and not the other way around, those have happened in blue states or at best mixed states. They haven't happened in Republican states. And I think one of the reasons it has sort of been so resisted is that there is this interest and maybe concern that people feel as though if we do this, we lose power. And it's a real challenge when you're dealing with a, um, a population that is rapidly changing. Take Texas, for example. In the 2010 cycle, the significant growth in that state, and it's been astronomical, has all been people of color. And what you saw was a district map that purely out of partisan reasons focused all opportunities, the new opportunities on the more rural and more white parts of the electorate. And it was intended to do you know, what Republicans wanted, which is to entrench their power long-term. So far, it seems that they're doing the same thing by sometimes grouping um, Democratic members, but more important than that, grouping people of color in districts that are reflective of the choices of minority voters. And that is just one of those things where it wasn't that long ago where everybody agreed that, you know, the Voting Rights Act should be a provision that everybody, regardless of party, should support. And now, you know, you get these very diametrically opposed views about whether it should exist. And if it does exist, whether it ought to be a fulsome way to help minority voters. That is a grave concern. And again, when you get to the point where these basic foundational choices about how democracies work are themselves being contested, it's dangerous, very dangerous. So yeah, I'm concerned about it all. It unfortunately has a very partisan flavor. I don't think um, it means that all Republicans feel this way. I am concerned about the sometimes silence by the part of our um, Republican colleagues who know better to speak out against it. Let's step back for a minute because I, I want to get your take on the balance that has to be struck when drawing these districts. You've written about the obligation of the federal government um, to examine or intervene when there is, and I'll quote you, uh, the unnecessary dispersion or overconcentration of votes of black communities. Um, so that seems like a fine line when I think about the most commonly lamented downside of gerrymandering, it's it's uncompetitive seats. But then I think about some of the representatives who have gotten the most done, and it's because they're from uncompetitive seats. Can you give us the layman's version of why gerrymandering is anti-democratic? Right. Well, gerrymandering as a general matter is, I mean, people define it differently, but I tend to accept those definitions that take the view that where the thrust of public will points in a particular direction and a line drawer manipulates that so it appears as though the will as it's expressed is exactly the opposite, then you're doing something that's artificial. So if it turns out, say, as statewide, this is usually how political scientists look at it, if the number of votes, the percentage of votes in an entire state tend to be cast for party A, but somehow they're funneled into a system that actually gives party B not just a majority, but like a supermajority of votes, there's something fundamentally wrong with the system. If we believe that this thing that we call democracy is that the majority should have its will, there's a lot of distance between what is sort of a reasonable way of drawing districts and those that aren't. But if you deny a majority the ability to express its will, that's sort of how generally we would define um, a gerrymandered map. The challenge where you lay a race onto this is we also have to contend with a history in which the state has explicitly, in a lot of our states in this country, explicitly been organized around the principle of denying or limiting the ability of people of color to cast ballots, right? You and I, you know, we graduated in a state where, sadly, even now in our constitution, <laughs> the state's constitution, Adopted in 1901, there's language that basically entrenches white rule. And I didn't just make that up. It's in the words. Now, the challenge is how do we deal with that legacy? And that's really what the Voting Rights Act and 
organizing districts that give um, minority groups an opportunity to elect a candidate comes in. So, you know, when African-Americans are large enough, just for an example, to be a majority of a district, and we show that without those districts, their preferred choice always loses, that's a place where we say, given our history, we want to make sure that they have that ability. That's not always the case, though. There may be instances where it doesn't take a majority of people of color to drive outcomes in a district. And in those instances, and by the way, we're driven by data to try to determine what those factors are. Um, in those instances, though, where it isn't that kind of what we call polarization, you might have fewer, a lower percentage of African-Americans who can work in concert with white voters or voters of other racial groups to elect their preferred candidates. That's how this generally works. And, you know, there have been, we've needed, I think, particularly in the American South, districts that were a majority African-American uh, profile for a large part of the uh, South to get members who reflected those interests elected. And they actually, to your point, have become some of the most significant leaders that we have in Congress and in state legislators. As we go forward, it may be, and in some places I think it's been shown that you can get people elected that are preferred candidates in less robust, if you will, lower than 50% African-American or Latino districts, but it really will depend on the circumstances. And our concern, my concern always when I talk with clients is, look, let's not prejudge any of this. All we know is what our current map looks like, but what we need to do are two things. Let's look at the data and see what the performance has been of a given district map, but let's also talk to people, the people who are actually governed by these maps, and hear what they have to say. And when you do both of those things, you build a record that supports a district configuration that goes one direction or another. These aren't easy issues to sort of settle, to be sure. But the goal is always to try to make a local appraisal, which is what the law requires you to do, of what the best political configuration is that gives people a voice. And where we know that race discrimination has been a part of a community's political history, we want to be sensitive to, as you say, doing enough to be effective, but not so much as to be counterproductive, to allow people to have their voice heard in as many districts as possible. Why are courts so, at least historically, loath to intervene in these dramas, often saying, look, this is a political matter. This is for the legislature to decide. Uh, we're out. Well, traditionally, courts, certainly the federal courts, are unelected and therefore are seen to be apolitical. So on matters that are, quote, political questions, the court doesn't get involved. The issue usually when you deal with districting is that you know it is intensely political. The implications are dire for one party or another in the next election, and everybody's attuned to it. And so the court is always sensitive to the question, all right, if we get involved in this, how are we going to avoid the allegation that we're doing it to help party A or party B? And usually that's an answer that is uh, rooted in this idea of principles. Are there rules and standards that will guide the decision-making so that it isn't, you know, a different outcome, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats coming in to complain. The problem has been that, unfortunately, as of late, some of the laws and standards that have been developed in this area, just for an example, one that kind of got the modern era going is that you have to keep districts that are roughly equally populated on the map. So every 10 years or so, we do a census, and we need to reflect those changes in the population uh, in the map so that one person roughly has the same uh, power in casting their vote as another person living in another district. The problem, unfortunately, is even those rules have now become partisan weapons. One party that thinks you should, again, have a fulsome application of one person, one vote, others that say we only want to count citizens, and that's just not what the rules have been. When that comes into play, then everything becomes a politicized issue, and the courts find themselves knee-deep in it. I'll take you back to the point you made earlier. It only gets worse when you have members of the court who jump into this from a very partisan perspective. And so, you know, there's been talk about what is described as the shadow docket, the ability of the United States Supreme Court to essentially make decisions affecting law without actually having a case, but essentially determining whether they will stay 
or refuse to stay a pending decision that comes from the federal courts on an emergency basis. So those decisions, particularly in the context of an election, just as an example, do you keep polling places open for a long, uh, a longer period of time due to, say, weather issues? Or as became really relevant during the um, pandemic, we're still in it, but in the middle of our presidential election, we had instances where people were concerned about getting access to uh, drop ballots without having to show up you know, in a polling place and risking their health. The Supreme Court intervened in some instances and didn't intervene, but usually to curtail the ability of states to provide those options. Those decisions have a huge impact on political outcomes, and it's becoming more and more tenuous, it seems to me, for the court to maintain its distance from politics if it's not obvious for those of us who are looking at their opinions to see that they're being guided in a sort of straightforward and predictable way about applying a rule. So that's really the challenge with all of this. It just seems to me that if ever there was an occasion for the court to to intervene, even if it felt like um, stepping on legislative prerogative, it would be an instance in which democracy itself was at stake. And I think we're hearing plenty now that suggests that you know we're seeing existential threats to the right to vote. What Ezra Klein refers to as the doom spiral of democracy. If you get this vicious cycle where minoritarian rule is cemented through voter repression and discrimination and even manipulating vote counts, then it makes it even harder to vote. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And the only remedy is either a court decision or or something kinetic, which is unthinkable, um, although more and more people are talking that way. I don't know that there's a question in there, but it just it frustrates me to no end that the court will not find the metal to weigh in here when when we're facing a threat to democracy itself. I tend to agree with you. I unfortunately also think there are some things that have been unsettled that we collectively as a country are going to have to settle. And one of them actually is reflected in the uh, decision that the president has taken to create a commission to address the question, does the court need to be reformed? There's definitely argument out there that says the court should be expanded. I think those arguments become more reasonable the more we see the court sort of subject to these, in my view, um, sort of pretty brazen efforts to manipulate uh, appointments to get on the court um, that aren't really rooted in sort of reason or consistency. Um, I think there's another piece of this that you mentioned that really, again, is sort of the unfinished business and unfortunately is another source of a lot of controversy. And that is what it means to have the right to vote, right? What we see in other modern democracies is a commitment explicit in the Constitution that everybody who is a part of the political community in a country gets the right to vote, and it is guaranteed as a matter of right. In our country, unfortunately, we haven't had that tradition, and it is not reflected explicitly in law, right? Our, our laws and our constitutional provisions give you a series of things that the state can't do, but it does not affirm that the ability to cast a ballot is a right. And in fact, you'll hear sometimes people say, well, this is a privilege, and so it can be denied when we want it to be. And to your point earlier, it seems to me that if you're talking about the right to vote, we have a lot of court opinions that say it's sacrosanct. It's the foundational uh, you know, platform for all other rights to exist. But we don't treat it that way in our case law, right? An administrative preference can lead to the limitation on a significant community that can show right, impact that you don't get to exercise your right. You have to overcome more hardship too. We've got a state in which people who have uh, actually gone to the ballot and said, look, we don't care that you have a, um, a record in your past of a felony. We think you should have a route back to be able to cast a ballot, and we want to create a system that's open to you. And I'm talking about the state of Florida. They've gone out of their way to make it very difficult for people, notwithstanding this constitutional amendment that the people spoke up for, that say, well, you've got to go through a lot more hurdles to make that happen. That's just not consistent with what I understand to be a right that is said to be fundamental. But we probably should think about what it means and what it takes to have an affirmative commitment to the right to vote. There's plenty more to do in addition to that. But I think one reason that courts and some states are willing to sort of play fast and loose with taking that seriously is that it's not 
contextually committed. And I think we ought to. When you refer to some states or when you say that that people are worried that the population is changing and, and they don't like it, I just want to put a fine point on that. We're talking about a Republican Party that has realized that it cannot maintain or, or govern with a shrinking coalition, with policies that are broadly unpopular. Their voter strategy today seems to be consisting of solely animating a hardcore base while alienating everybody else. But they can still pull it off as long as the people they are making it hard to vote for are in big cities or are minorities. I mean, this is not a both sides problem, is it? I will say I think that's right. And, you know, we shouldn't pull punches about it. Unfortunately, the party as a whole, you know, we know evidence of people trying to push against this. But the party at present has seemed to embrace the idea that, you know, even if the numbers aren't in your favor, you can tilt the table and, you know, try everything that you can to win elections. And at the point at which we lose hold on the notion that, again, commitments like democracy should reflect the majority will, or that everybody gets an opportunity to speak up and cast a vote in an election, if that becomes partisan, then the, I think the whole deal of this system doesn't work. And and what scares me is, again, I, you know, <laughs> I have faith. Every time we've had conversations about voting rights in this country, when something gets done, Democrats and Republicans have worked together and people in the middle who don't affiliate. And that's necessary for our system to work because somebody's going to win and lose an election. What we don't want to happen is the crumbling and essentially, (laughs) I don't know another way to put it, the demolition of democracy. And at the point at which we've got a party that seems okay with that, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And I I have to say, God love them. I, I see you know, our Republican friends sometimes get into this space of winning at all costs. And, you know, where the leadership is doing that, you have to have people speaking up. And sometimes that happens, not enough, where, you know, the party has to say, you know what, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have a long-term interest in appealing to people. And I guess this is the point that you were referencing earlier it used to be the case that when you lose an election, you figure out where the people are and you find the people. But if your solution to this problem that you're, is that you lose an election and you just want to cut out some of the electorate, that's a lot of things, but that's not a democracy. And it used to be the case that every American understood that. That's what scares me. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The redistricting commissions, such as the one in Virginia that you're assisting, are an example at least in theory, of that coming together, right? They are designed to be bipartisan in nature. They're designed to get at the problem with 
the strengthening of democracy um, in mind, and it's a way to force both sides to figure out a compromise. Is that a fair, albeit rough, summary of what the commissions are supposed to do? I think in theory, states that have adopted commissions are intended to try to find right places in the middle where people of all political stripes, when they're done that way, uh, Democrat, Republican, unaffiliated, can get beyond politics and talk about the things that matter to real people in the state. And yes, that has political implications, but you do it in a way that kind of makes decisions on principle without getting into the backroom deals, that you do so in a transparent way, and you do so with data. So, you know, Virginia is one of the states that has attempted to do it. They've done it in somewhat different ways. Um, They've chosen both to have Democrats and Republicans, but, you know, not unaffiliated people. They've also chosen, which is a new thing, um, certainly in the South, they've chosen to combine citizens with elected. And that's been an interesting, uh, and I think, and challenging in some ways, conversation. But I think the effort that they've put forward is really intended to try to craft uh, a model for the rest of the South. This is the first Southern state to try this. And I think so far, there have been heated discussions, but I think discussions that have at least put forward hard calls that have to happen in a state that is rapidly changing. That's, you know, the gospel truth of it all. But most states don't have these commissions. In most states, it's just a bare-knuckle brawl, a might-makes-right fight controlled by those who currently hold those state legislatures, regardless of what the majority of the people want, right? That's correct. And that's actually one of the challenges of uh, dealing with a few states that have adopted commissions, a growing number, but still fewer than the ones that are, as you say, your traditional legislative-driven, partisan-heavy processes. I've worked in both processes, and you know, each has its upsides and downsides. What I want to offer is, in this context, of course, everything has become nationalized. And that's really one of the big challenges for all of these processes. You know, states pride themselves on having individual identities and, you know, choices and policies that sort of drive how their political culture works. One of the features we just have to come to grips with is given how close things are in the United States Congress, every election is a national election, and there are a lot of forces put on these uh, state processes, whether they're commissions or not, that, you know, are really carefully looking at, well, what does this mean for the national government? Do the D's outnumber the R's or vice versa? And that's a real challenge. That's a real challenge. But I think it means that for these otherwise partisan processes in legislatures, they become hyper-partisan because not only do you have the internal networks of parties, you've got the you know, national party leaders coming in and pushing as well. But you're right. In these legislative settings, it is a, usually a might-makes-right process, limited sometimes by some rules that are put in place that try to guide the structure. But that's a rare thing indeed. So, for example, in Iowa, you know, which doesn't quite have a commission, there's an administrative process that creates a map, and the legislature has to vote it up or down. There apparently are attacks on even that now, but my hope is that, uh, at least in Iowa, that it gets maintained. The question for the long term is, in these legislative processes, is there ever going to be a point at which you can sort of step away and say, there's a better way to do this, at least for the um, perspective of not being guided purely by politics? Because the moment you get to that, it is, as you say, might make right and all no holds are barred. To finish the point, I'll just say... This was not helped at all by the United States Supreme Court in a case, uh, you know, I had some involvement with uh, denying any federal oversight over partisan gerrymandering. The moment they open the floodgate, people are going to fill it. And I think we're seeing now the sort of essentially postscript in that. A lot of people feel perfectly comfortable going after people of the disfavored party because they can. And they know that at least at the federal court level, Nobody's going to do anything about it. To your point about everything becoming nationalized these days, I want to read for you an excerpt from your application to uh, to serve as an advisor to the Virginia Redistricting Commission. This is a questionnaire that the commission put out in its request for proposals. And 
It included a lot of the pro forma questions like, you know, do you know of any conflicts that would inhibit you from performing your task or are you willing to negotiate regarding your time and fee structure? But it also included this in the official questionnaire for businesses like yours. Who won the 2020 presidential election? And is there a reasonable legal basis to question the outcome of the election? I mean, that's just extraordinary to me that a that a redistricting commission has to establish that baseline. Do you remember filling out that form and reading that? I do, and it did strike me as a sign of the times, right? I mean, this was right on the heels of a very contested uh, presidential election, even after right the numbers came in. And that's the thing. I mean, you're asking lawyers these questions. You know, we have an obligation to abide by rules, even if the rules as applied don't result in the, ha- you know, the outcome that we might prefer and become happy about. But I think in this day and age, you just never know what's going to happen. My hope is that, you know, a lot of these, particularly, again, officers of the court, I'll just speak about that, lawyers who should know better, doing things that really erode the legitimacy of the court but also the foundation of our democracy. Um, a lot of them are hearing from court for you know behavior that is unbecoming. So you know individuals are being found in contempt. Individuals are brought into court in defamation lawsuits. You know I don't want to be too Pollyannish about this because I don't think it will all take care of itself from this. But I do think our system has some checks to try to cut back on that. But again, to your point, you're asking the question about how everything has become politicized, you know, I can understand why the commission wanted to ask that question. I lament the fact that they have to ask that question, but I can see why they they put it in the the questionnaire. I want to switch gears uh, just because it's not every day I get to talk to uh, a classmate from 30 years ago who, who grew up with me in the cradle of the of the Confederacy. And you've, you've written about some of the symbology that we were surrounded by. And I've had some fascinating conversations on this show with scholars of that. Uh, and one of them was with um, Kathleen Ballou, who was trying to explain how the Confederate flag, which was, you know, of such totemic significance in the Deep South in our youth, has been adopted across the country now as God knows what, but among other things, separatism, anti-government, independence in, in air quotes. How in the heck do you explain the migration of this symbol, which you know was always defended as, as a nod to Southern heritage, and I'll grant that as long as you include treason and racism and terror in that uh, in that heritage. And it's now being picked up by Northerners in states that fought the Confederacy. You know, <laughs> that's a big question. And I, I've thought about it a lot, particularly now, right? I mean, we are at an interesting moment, as I told you, I'm sitting in Richmond, where, you know, people at least uh, will also say they too own a piece of the Confederate story. And both in Montgomery and in Richmond, we're seeing these interesting moments of, I suppose it's a reckoning, but an accounting of that history and how it has affected a lot of different people. And by that, I mean very explicitly that, you know, you have all of these symbols that are intended to be, as some would have it, entrenching heritage only, not, they don't mean hate. But all of a sudden, people are now hearing that actually those things are harmful. They are symbols of trauma. And, you know, we're working to change it. You know, the mayor in Montgomery, uh, by the way, first African-American mayor of the city, you know, has started to rename things, removing names of Confederates who never lived in Montgomery or even stepped foot in Montgomery for native Montgomerians. Similarly so in Richmond that you've got people removing statues, the Lee statue and and, uh, uh, Memorial Avenue is being removed. But at the same time, as your point offers, you're seeing the spread of this in places that don't actually have a historical connection to the Confederacy. I remember actually being in a a place in Southern California, I think it was- Except to fight it. Well, yes, that too. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And, And that's the weird part, right? I mean, you have people who take bits and pieces that serve 
a sort of, I don't know whether it's psychological or sociological, but some need to feel a part of something that was lost. And that's their way of expressing it. But I'll, I'll tell you another story, because I, I actually think some of this, I, you know, we tell ourselves stories to, I think, achieve certain ends, ultimately. And they're fables or songs or whatever you want to make it. But they're symbols, too, that function that way. I still am struck by the story out of South Carolina, and it was in 2015, where, um, and I won't mention his name, the uh, young man went into a church basement and took the lives of nine people who let him in during a prayer service. Uh, to me, as about as despicable as it gets, but put that to the side. What I note is that in his pictures, this kid who was from the South, I don't know if he'd have ever put out of the country, had a patch on his jacket from the Republic of Rhodesia. But Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. But Rhodesia was when a white minority ran what is the majority black country. Now, I don't know why he had a connection or saw a connection to Rhodesia, but I think people see a connection to, and I would call it the illusion of power. And to me, the flag, when it is flown in these other places, is really intended to be, my view is, um, at times, this sort of hearkening back to a time that actually never was, but they wish it would be. And that's, <laughs> you know, when I see it, I get a little concerned. Um, but I actually think, you know, it's fair to say, you know, you see people try to tell a story that doesn't involve race, but obviously you can't understand the Confederacy without thinking about race. And, you know, I know you didn't ask this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. One of the fascinating parts about how we're talking about, you know, what is deemed critical race theory, which is itself a misnomer, but telling the complete story of America, its highs, its lows, and everything in between, that that is contested, to me, is as threatening to the maintenance of our democracy as some of these efforts we've been talking about in a formal way to undermine the right to vote. We have to understand that we are part of a community and that our community consists of people with a lot of different experiences. And if we want to fence certain experiences out, that's not a community that's America. And I fear that people are going to become more and more committed to doing it by any means necessary. But, and I do want to sound hopeful in this respect, it's our job as people who believe that we have to be better than that. And that's not really what our country is meant to do. We have to push back against it. And it means often that people who are Republicans or who are white Southerners have to speak up. It just can't be always, right, the people on one side of either the political divide or within one racial group. We've all got to speak out against it. But uh, it's a long project. I appreciate the hopefulness. Um, indulge me for a minute, though. Put the pessimist hat back on. And what happens <laughs> if the rural school boards – purge any mention of, uh, of race or, as some in, in states like Texas have put it, subjects that will make students feel uncomfortable? What happens if uh, deep red states with, um, at least legislatively, with changing populations find a way to cement their minoritarian rule? What is, what's the worst case scenario here. And I'm not just asking you as a legal scholar. I'm asking you uh, as someone who, you know, grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. Well, I mean, I'll just tell you, I would actually put another hat on to try to answer this question. And it's as political scientists, you know, I think the idea of American exceptionalism has been frayed in the last few years. I think there've been always people who questioned it, but, you know, the, the facts are becoming more and more apparent. And when you look at other countries where this kind of thing has happened, again, the manipulation of the electoral process, the forcing of particular kinds of learning and, you know, alienating serious critical thought of any type, what you usually get is one of two things. You either get totalitarianism or you get an armed revolt. And that, again, is sort of the nightmare scenario that I hope everybody is at least understanding now. Frankly, we came pretty darn close to that on January 6th of this year. And, you know, 
our reaction to it, our efforts to investigate and understand it have now been subject to the same sort of, you know, back and forth manipulating that doesn't take this as seriously as I think we should. So what happens? I mean, I would not like to have zones of this country where you just can't learn the full story or you can't exercise all of your rights. I mean, there've been people now, I guess, going back to what you said about growing up in Montgomery. I remember, you know, hearing a lot of people at different points and political discourse, not necessarily in Montgomery, but other places saying, well, if you don't like it, leave. (laughs) And I will tell you, as a black person who grew up in Montgomery, you know, it's like, well, people like me built this place (laughs) and they didn't do it for pay. So why would we leave? And I guess that's the point that I think most people really have to understand. And frankly, this is true as much as people um, talk about it from the right. You know, there are also some people, and I don't mean to both sides it, but there's some people say, well, why, if it's so horrible that we all should just leave? And you're like, as a Southerner, I find that it is important to have as much entitlement and attachment to the space that is the South a place that you've helped to create and form and build again, often for a lot of people for a long period of time without compensation. That's exactly the place where you recommit. Um, You know, (laughs) I acknowledge that sometimes I sound a little bit more optimistic and sometimes the facts might support, but when you come from a people who began (laughs) in a very disfavored position in this country, you have to be supported by faith, and optimism. And frankly, as recently as the 1950s, you know, it wasn't all that long that we've had these rights that we're fighting over right now, fully enjoyed. We have to keep fighting. And our commitment to this country, as much as we might, you know, also be frustrated by uh, decisions taken at any given moment. I imagine, you know, in the military, there were decisions taken by leaders that you may or may not have fully appreciated or embraced, but the job is, the commitment is to try to work with the team. And in my view, our community is sort of the principle that we should all kind of be working very hard to develop. Um, And sometimes that means working hard against people who want to dissolve it, who don't care that much about it. But I do believe, and again, I don't mean to sound, I'm not a politician, thank heavens, but I like to support them when they do the right thing. I firmly believe that it is worth the effort to create a community that is really focused on helping everyone, no matter what their situation is. Can I, I need to tell a quick story, and I promise it won't be too long, but I'm reminded of another, a fellow Alabamian, uh, one of the greatest in my view that, that the state ever produced, John Lewis. Georgia claims him, but he comes from Alabama. <laughs> you know, his speech on the March of Washington was so powerful for a number of reasons. But what I love that he said was in one breath, he said something bold in his like early 20s. I don't think I was this bold at that age. We will rip, I'm paraphrasing, we will rip apart Jim Crow and segregation to 10,000 pieces. Now, he said that in 1963, right? So this was in the midst of the crazy. But then in the same breath, he said, and we will rebuild this society in the face of God and democracy. And to me, that's sort of the point. This isn't just about destroying things and deconstructing things. We need to do that. We need to stop the foolishness that has informed the exclusion and marginalization of people, sometimes for profit, sometimes for random principle. But we have to rebuild it into something better. And my goal always is, whatever the work is, sometimes we have to speak you know, some hard truths to each other, but we do it for the purpose of building something better for all of us, that everybody has a place at the table, everybody has a chance to contribute, but that has to mean that sometimes when we see that there's inequality, we work to remedy it. And that's really the challenge of all of this. You know, These political contests are filled with their intrigue. But if we can get at the core of it and sort of focus on what allows everybody to have a chance and an opportunity, I think there are answers to that that can keep most people reasonably satisfied. But we got to be willing to do it. And that's right now, I think, the fight that we're in. We got to be willing in principle to say, you know what, that actually is okay. And I'm sad to say that that's actually a contested point. But I don't think it's one that we are incapable of achieving. It's just going to take a lot of work. Well, I am I am content to end on that hopeful note. We always uh, wrap up the show with the same question. Uh, so, 
Kareem, what is the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? Ooh, the bravest decision I've ever been a part of. My gosh, and I'm telling this, I'm going to answer this to a person who served in the military. Well, let me think about that. Um, the bravest decision that I can think of at the moment was um, stepping out and crafting my own consulting um, service. I think I spent my life sort of thinking about institutions and feeling a sense of comfort in them. And what I realized is that there's strength in designing and developing your own brand and, you know, pursuing things that reflected your interests. And so there's a beauty in that. And to be able to build that has been in some ways a scary thing, but also I think in a lot of different ways, a terribly fulfilling thing. So again, does it rise to sort of a, a grand, courageous level of uh, brave? But I think it, for me and my journey, has been an important departure that has allowed me to do some things I don't think I, uh, you know, could have imagined when I started out in college. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're in the fight, so to speak, and helping the Virginia Redistricting Commission and others. Um, let's do this again, and let's not wait another 30 years. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Kirk. We will. We, I look forward to doing it again, and definitely within 30 years. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Kareem for joining me. You can learn more about his work at KareemCrayton.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at at KareemCrayton. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.